Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Cool. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, this is this is a completely off the cuff intro. Uh, I don't have control over when it starts and when it ends. So just I'm just a conduit, you know. But egg and onion sandwich it sounds very old time like it's an old it's an old 1950s ass sandwich, yeah right? there's always one of those sandwich. things in, a, in one of these movies right where they'll just bring up something casually that sounds like the weirdest shit you've ever heard of and it's like i guess they it like, must have been a thing back then they like double mm. down on it they like he could have an option of any sandwich he pleases he chooses an egg and onion sandwich and i don't even know what form that took was it well, mashed part of, part, part of me took it or as I, I, I don't know, I wasn't a hundred percent sure in the moment, but I, no. I thought the joke was like, this is a ridiculous sandwich. And like, it's funny oh. because she's like, so oh. Like, like, Oh, I'm happy to make you this ridiculous sandwich that you want because they're given, you know, you know, sexy eyes to each other. I'm not going to lie. I didn't, like, I didn't read it that way, but I like I didn't that either. reading. I, I, I like that, but I do like that. Yeah. That's a good wow. point. I think Cody should be a screenwriter. We I think uh, so. well, the, probably, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Aaron. I was going to say that kind of the main evidence against that reading is the people in the 1950s did eat some just dumb, oh, dumb of shit. I mean, it's it, most, I mean, that sandwich, I mean, at least sounds edible. They're reading like oh, tomato mayo sandwiches, help the war effort, you know? Tomato like mayo sandwiches. 1950s do, America do was rip. definitely like, that's definitely the worst food of the 20th century, right? Or of the 21st century. Well, it's yeah. everybody during the Great Depression that grew up and were like, I'm a chef now. I can now decide what my family eats. And they will be eating the same things that I was forced uh, for fear of death to eat uh, two decades ago. That's a good Have point. Seen... I didn't consider the economic angle to that. I feel yes, a little bit bad about that. A number of uh, angles you can kind of tackle this problem. Uh, Have from, you ever yeah. seen those those recipe books? Those like 60s and 70s recipe books all about like making jello versions of dinner foods it's like whole spatchcocked turkeys like just solidified in gelatin and shit it looks so just it looks like alien food it looks like that was like a preservation thing though right jello lasts forever and so like that's also a a great depression thing that's i'm sure it's like yeah some sort or it's like but I guess I'm, now it's all like powder yeah. you just mix in because it's like it's like yeah. it's just gelatin and flavoring and you mix that with hot water and boom you have jello. It's like easy, like shelf safe. You know what I mean? Right. Um, have you guys gross as fuck? Have you, have you guys ever seen the? Uh, this is like a classic bit of like internet humor, but the uh, the microwave cooking for one book. Yeah, dude, uh, it rules. It's so it's, good. <laughs> it's one of the greatest things in this entire universe. I will post a picture in the chat. It's great for the podcast. But I'll post a picture in the chat in case you have not seen. Uh, the cover of this, which is one of the most depressing things I think I've ever seen in my life. What is up with what is up with the fact that all cookbooks <laughs> look like that? Also, they have that like that like 
matte 1980s sort of like appearance. You know what I mean? Where they look, yeah, that very, they look like they very were constructed like, for a movie set or something. Weird studio lighting. Yeah. And no vanishing right. point, like no focal center of this image anywhere. That's a much more eloquent way of putting it than I had. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just like we never, we didn't crack food photography until like 2000. 13 or something before that it was just like well it all looks like plastic <laughs> i think i How think honestly in the frame yeah it was the, i'm sure there's like some dietetic historian that would uh beat me over the head for saying this but i i i always kind of assumed that like that kind of it's always like a it's it's like always like an upper middle class like household it's always like a dinner table that's just like overflowing like comically right. with stuff i always assumed it kind of sprung up from like the julia child like or like the start of like really popular TV cooking where it's like, I'm going to make nine dishes and slowly put them on the table over the course of this program. You know what I mean? And like the table would just you, fill up. You, the That's one a great Julia Child. Gave, Fuck you. I was going to say, no, the one example you gave is Julia Child to represent this whole host of like potential chefs. And now she is the voice of like hundreds I, of thousands <laughs> of culinary artists worldwide. It's, What's your it's, thing? I, that, it's yeah, a way to go. Inherently. Uh, it it, it coincided very strongly with the the adop- mass adoption of uh, uh, technology, uh, kind of in the the American we, household. You can hear more about this by class is is closely tied to home cooking. The idea yeah, our sorry wrong number uh, episode ties into uh, the emergence of telephones in the home. But you can now hear more about microwaves and ovens and whatnot. Y'all, uh, we uh, you mentioned that later or uh, earlier this week, I think. Uh, sorry, wrong number. I completely forgot we did an episode on that movie. That was my greatest moment on this podcast. Was my 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 uh, uh, eureka moment about the themes of that film. That is maybe the greatest insight I've ever had into really any sort of art or entertainment in my life. So uh, should have given it up after that. But yeah. But can he top it in this current episode of Try Love? For which I thank you for listening. This is a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find our podcast on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema itself at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. I am Daphnis, Jason T. I haven't failed. I haven't even tried yet. And I'm on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, Narvison? Uh, Cody A is my name. Uh, what did you have in mind? You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, Mackin. Thank you, Cody. I'm Mackin, Harry K, and I've been combating reality for 29 years, and I'm pleased to say I've finally won. And uh, I'm rounding out our cast with Grossman over there. Sorry to use your last name, Grossman. Yes, Aaron M. I'm the screwiest uncle who's ever stuck my puss in your nut house. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> one read, one take, baby. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Today's movie uh, we're going to be talking about is Harvey, a 1950 film starring Jimmy Stewart, uh, my mom's uh, childhood and adulthood crush. Um, this is uh, this is a movie we just all, well, most of us caught at the Trilon very recently where it played on 35. Uh, so excellent way to uh, see this movie. And even with a lot of the little fun technical errors that occurred along the way, uh, ideal way to see this movie. And uh, and uh, I, I, I really feel sorry for anybody, um, present company included, who did not get to see this film on a glorious 35 millimeter film um, and instead probably watched a far inferior version uh, in their home or apartment, whatever sort of living situation they have. Potentially in um, their office, uh, their foot. Potentially in the same place they were. Awkwardly yeah. leaned up on their desktop computer. Driving uh, home, really, the, 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 the ethos and pathos of this movie. Um, 
that he probably watched it in the same place where he works, the same place where he indeed uh, slaves for a wage day in, day out. Uh, and then he turns around and gets to have a wonderful life with, with, with his wife and uh, self-actualizes through things that oh, do not okay, bring us uh, back. duty, responsibility, or monetary gain. Uh, so anyway, it's Harvey, and Aaron's going to tell us what it's all about. Yeah, if I can get through without coughing. Uh, Harvey is a 1950 film directed by Henry Coster. Uh, Elwood P. Dowd uh, is played by, as mentioned previously, James Stewart. He is a friendly, middle-aged man, uh, kind of odd in behavior, uh, but good-natured and friendly to all of those that he meets. Um, He also has a friend named Harvey. He is a six-foot, three-and-a-half-inch tall white rabbit who is invisible to everyone else in Elwood's life. Uh, The presence of Harvey uh, kind of tied along with Elwood's kind of natural inclination to introduce him to absolutely everyone he comes into contact with has made um, Elwood uh, kind of a pariah, uh, albeit unbeknownst to him. Um, It's also given a bit of an outcast status to his sister, uh, Veda, played by Josephine Hall, and his niece, Myrtle May, played by Victoria Horn, uh, both of whom he lives with. After ruining one of Veda's house parties, she kind of decides to have him taken to a local sanitarium, Uh, but this gets complicated as those around Elwood are charmed by his nature, and some even start seeing Harvey themselves. Uh, Also in this film, uh, speaking of the cast and kind of of, of special note here, uh, Peggy Dow plays Miss Kelly. She is a nurse at the sanitarium. Charles Drake plays Dr. Sanderson. He's a doctor at the sanitarium. Jesse White plays Marvin Wilson, who's kind of a security guard, all-around assistant uh, at the sanitarium. And Cecil Kellaway, yes, Kellaway, plays uh, Dr. William Chumley, who is the head uh, of the sanitarium. Uh, The film was financially and critically successful on release, uh, with Stewart being nominated for Best Actor, uh, losing to Jose Ferrer uh, for uh, Serrano de Bergerac, actually, Bergerac, uh, and Hall uh, actually ended up winning Best Supporting Actress. Uh, I think I made it through there with only one or two coughs. Uh, Jason, what do you think of the film? I thought that this movie was an absolute delight. Uh, Josephine Hull, it shines. I think she deserves that award that she that she got. Was she? I believe she was also in Arsenic and Old Lace, right? I think she was one of the aunties. That sounds about right. I will she definitely has that that kind of a face. Uh, just come back to me with the answer. Um, I really, really quite enjoyed this movie. It was hard to contain uh, a lot of our thoughts. Save it for the pod hashtags s i f t p all around, but it was a little hard to contain just because it has uh, a very strong, positive energy about it. Obviously anybody who watches it could come out uh, with that in tow. But um, I like in trying to drill down more specifically into what I really enjoyed about it. I love how it uh, a lot of different pieces here, but I love how it moves. It's like selectively chooses when to actually leave space in the cinematography and in the blocking for Harvey and when to like really focus in on, um, you know, Elwood, there's, you know, a lot of fun, obviously, uh, you know, kind of hokey, but very well executed shots of like, now there's, uh, now we're going to pan out a little bit because you're supposed to be envisioning Har- Harvey walking through the door to the bar or whatever. Um, and it, those happen just often enough that it, like impresses in your mind that like this character is supposed to occupy physical space, even though he's not visible. Um, reminds me a lot of our discussion on the invisible man, uh, from earlier this year. Um, and let's see, I, we discussed whether or not this movie would go full Jimmy, uh, per John Moret's, um, shorthand for Jimmy Stewart, just kind of going most, uh, I guess the most Jimmy Stewart you can become is sort of a crazed, uh, very eccentric, excitable character just on the verge of really letting loose, um, as seen, uh, in the shop around the corner, 
which we also covered on this podcast. Uh, I think that he does, I guess, uh, in, in, in summary, go full Jimmy. It's just a different look for him by this time. He's in his forties by the time this movie came out where the shop around the corner, which, uh, really cemented the idea for us anyway, of full Jimmy in our heads was another full, almost like 10 years later, or excuse me, earlier or something. Um, I think it's just a more self-aware performance, a more winking, uh, than the overexpressiveness and sort of earnestness of the shop around the corner, which I think plays really nicely alongside the, uh, way more, um, I guess on the nose, we'll say, uh, plotting and story. Um, the lampooning of Hote society, uh, I think is great. It, um, it slowly unfolds that it starts the movie, assuming that you have this like noblesse oblige to, uh, you know, that high society is the way things are supposed to be sort of. And that, um, you know, uh, uh, what, 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 what are they called? Like dinner parties at, you know, big mansions are a normal thing that everybody should want. And aberrations from that are to be sort of silenced and sort of, I mean, of course, this is all just text in the plot, but, um, it sort of slowly moves from that to, uh, you know, through really key scenes at the sanitarium, um, before setting this, the stage, uh, for like the lines between high society and real life starting to crumble, uh, obviously, um, accumulating in when the uh, warden of the sanitarium himself tries to, at least for a short while, does in fact adopt Harvey and sort of realizes his, his reality and, uh, and, or like what he means to, um, people like him. Uh, I think there's like a really important scene where, um, it's the monologue near the middle of the movie. We're all probably thinking of it already, but, uh, where Jimmy Stewart and, um, uh, Miss Kelly, and I'm forgetting the doctor's name, uh, Charles Drake, when they're sort of powwowing outside of the bar that, uh, that Jimmy frequents and they, um, they have this really heart heartfelt talk, uh, where the doctor tries to more or less diagnose Harvey as a symptom of something else. He asks Jimmy, sorry, asks Elwood a series of like leading questions about important figures in his life, you know, childhood friends and his father and stuff. And he just like, he keeps dodging and he's got, um, uh, I think that that passage, that whole, uh, scene is, is really important to sort of like the, the purpose of, uh, of the character of, of, um, Harvey as like a narrative piece. Uh, and it's just a really great piece of writing all around. This was of course, as Aaron mentioned, adapted from a stage play by one of the writers of the stage play, uh, who won the Pulitzer for it. And I think it shows in a lot of the writing. Um, I, I really like, the, man, this is really going off the rails for me. But, um, the other thing that stuck out to me that I don't know, uh, was like as obvious as, as it could have been, um, was the place of, uh, Veda and Myrtle May, um, Elwood's sister and niece respectively in the story as like, I guess as the warming water for what the movie ends up doing, you know, Myrtle May is sort of an aspiring young socialite, uh, really looking to break in and, and find her, find a man and find people and find friends to settle down with and like the right people, good people, that kind of thing. And Veda is fully just like entrenched in it. Like she already has these, she's already part of this like version of society that, um, that Elwood prevents them from really like, uh, from, from reentering, I guess, after the, you know, all these traumatic events that have led to the creation of Harvey in his mind. Um, anyway, I, that's, that's going on way too long. I know that my, uh, co my, uh, co-hosts here are going to be, have much, uh, more descriptive and interesting thoughts about this movie. Um, so I'm going to pass to, uh, Cody for his top level thoughts about Harvey. 
Thank you, Jason. Uh, your thoughts were great. No need to to come back uh, apologetic. Like um, I loved and and was able to follow and, and like feel the same way um, uh, about much of what you were saying. Some probably way too much information uh, about my background with this movie. It's a movie that I I was saying before our viewing at the trial and that I like, this is a movie I wanted to watch for a long time. Uh, ever since like high school, what I would do is I would go to my public library and I would kind of uh, peruse the, the DVD section, look for movies that seemed interesting and that I would maybe want to watch eventually. And uh, this was back when I was learning how to uh, burn DVD discs. And so I would check out a bunch of movies, copy the image file and, um, uh, burn DVD. So there's uh, somewhere in my wow. apartment in, in like one of my DVD binders, there's definitely just like a, a hokey looking, like in Sharpie in all caps, Harvey written on a DVD somewhere that I just never got around Wonderful. to watching. Wow. Yeah. Cody, you got to know, I did the exact same thing with PlayStation three discs from my local family video that I feel a certain kinship now. Ooh, uh, using context clues, I'm going to assume that those are video games. Uh, just kidding, hey. I'm not that out of it. Um, but yeah, that's hey, that. I mean, that's the thing to do, right? Uh, and instead of you know what it seemed to me like this movie was at the time, you know, like instead of it being zany adventures of you know this alcoholic James Stewart and his invisible hallucinated rabbit friend, um, we get like a, a different and I think better movie or like a higher ceiling kind of movie. It's, you know, it's a few different things. It's a discussion of how like social decorum and kindness and long-term well-being and, and a bunch of other things sort of intersect with one another and kind of what that looks like. It's also a character study wherein like a lot of the legwork is done through viewing other characters within Elwood's orbit. You know, we don't spend like a ton of time with him in the first maybe act and a half. Uh, we're sort of learning about him through others. And I, I always really love when movies pull that off. Um, there were a few moments where I, I felt like I was sitting on pins and needles uh, just because it, it, this is a movie from 1950 and this story was written well before that. And like, you know, with this adaptation, I wasn't necessarily expecting representation of like mental health and trauma and alcoholism to go all that well. By the end of this, I was fair, you know, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that or convinced enough rather that this, this story, this screenplay, you know, it understands the extent to which it's uh, sort of out of its element. And it works because Dowd's unique perspective and his own, this own specific characterization of those things um it plays into a greater conversation sort of the the idea of you know is this thing we're watching is it a painting or is it a photograph um there's a a quick scene of the movie that sort of gestures at that and i really like that one and you know furthermore does that distinction even really matter um you know we'll, we'll talk about james stewart a whole bunch probably this is definitely up there for one of my personal favorite performances of his now that i've seen this movie uh speaking as an audience member he um there were a few folks in our crowd at the trial and that were um, on like hoot and hollering type levels. Uh, uh, Stewart had them in perpetual stitches. Uh, and that was not a bad thing. Obviously. Like that's, that, it was a very fun crowd, a fun environment. Um, the uh, scene that Jason was uh, alluding to the sort of big mo- monologue that Stewart has in the alleyway outside, I want to say it was Charlie's. Um, I could be misremembering, um, but that's he had, yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, Stuart, he, he had our audience like legitimately captivated. Um, everybody and everything was completely still and silent. We, or at least I was holding on to, to every word of it. Um, and so like he really shines, uh, a lot of performances really shine in this movie. This movie is like, it's bolstered by like every 
performance, um, no matter how peripheral it, 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 it was uh, like an energy where it felt like everybody was like pulling more than their fair share, share of the weight. Um, and you know, we learned a lot about Elwood, like I said, because of how everyone else like reacts to him. Um, and so like, I, I don't know, it's worth calling them out. We'll probably talk about a bunch of them today. Um, but yeah, I, I like this movie a lot. I'm looking forward to us talking about it. Um, I guess now though, uh, has, uh, has anyone seen my friend Harry? Uh, I, I was supposed to, well, 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 there, there you are, Harry. Uh, we were all wanting to know what you thought of the film Harvey. Well, but, uh, 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 th- th- thank, thank you, Cody. Uh, that's uh, sweet of you to introduce me in such a manner. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I also really love this movie. Um, I think that it, it's really fascinating in a lot of ways because it, it is based on a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, play. And I think that is more obvious than I, it has been in most movies I've ever seen um, to the point where, as Jason alluded to, there are, there are entire scenes where you can tell they were originally blocked for the stage and they may have even worked better on the stage. I think particularly in the first act, the hard plainness of this movie acts against it a little bit. Um, but ultimately, I think that it gives something more than it takes from the movie, which is that um, I think the scripting and writing in this movie is so sharp and the allegiance it has to its characters and to get making sure that each of its characters has their day and that they get the appropriate amount of attention paid to them and have the appropriate amount of arc. Um, it, it sort of formally coalesces really well with the overall idea of this movie, which is basically that it just portrays Harvey or um, Dowd's philosophy sort of in, in praxis or in practice, right? Where like, he's sort of all about not dismissing people and giving people the time of day, hearing them out, hearing their opinion, treating them as ends in of, in and of themselves. And I think the movie does that too, in a really spectacular way where like, all of these characters are just by virtue of the fact that they're here and they're in this movie, they're considered something worth paying attention to, something worth getting to know. And the movie itself approaches them exactly the way that Dowd would, the way that Dowd is so pleasant and so kind to everyone. And you can see how just that presence in their lives, just being close to them and and introducing them to Harvey, it helps these people blossom and open up and connect with one another. You can sort of see them uh, come out of their own heads a little bit and and start to take stock of the people in the community around them a little bit. And especially for a movie set in the 1950s to make that sort of point about the communal experience and to, to ground it in mental health specifically is really brave. Um, Jason, you brought up a lot about the sort of social class politics of this movie, which is a really great point that I think kind of missed me maybe initially. Um, just because it, it gets sort of lost in the 1950s-ness of this movie. You don't really understand what a pointed class critique this is, but it really is saying something about the nature of social decorum and social performance and how that creates this sort of embarrassment and this urge to dismiss other people or even to sort of categorically sort and separate other people Um in terms of prejudices, right? Which is a really fascinating point that this movie makes, I think, especially using sanitariums, which are sort of like the logical endpoint of that, right? Of like, well, now we can separate people to the point where we dismiss them from society because we think that they're dangerous or we think that there's nothing worth learning from from them. And Dowd sort of comes to embody the opposite of that in my mind in a way that works really well and that creates this really warming humanist message, which especially for the 1950s feels genuinely subversive, right? And and genuinely a little bit um 
radical in the sense that it is very clearly um, combating some some of the dominant social theories of the time, right? Where if you if you consider how 1950s were about uh, the sort of social conformity and the the rise of the middle class and the homogenization of society, particularly in the suburbs and particularly among older white people, um, like having the courage to make a movie about you know, I mean, one of Dowd's, the first person we're introduced to with Dowd is a, a um, person who's been in and out of jail. He hangs out at bars and that is considered like really scandalous in this culture. Um, and to sort of have the the audacity to say that this character is fundamentally right and actually the people who um, who would dismiss him from society or who would look down on him are the people that should change and not necessarily him is like a really um, poignant message, I think. And uh, I think that the movie does a really great job, not only sort of uh, textually, but also in terms of its form and in the terms of the way it's telling its story, um, communicating that message. And I think that that really sings particularly in some wildly strong um, monologue performances, right? Like I, I agree with everybody else who's saying Jimmy Stewart gives one of his best performances here. And I think particularly that, that monologue he gives about um, how uh, in this, his, his mother, his late mother always used to say, right, that you have to either be really smart or really pleasant. And he said he tried being really smart and he prefers being really pleasant, which like, I don't mind admitting like, first of all, that's some, that's like a sentiment that Jason has expressed to me before as like something that I thought was really wise. And like to hear that come from the movie and then to like see Jason, like, very quietly like fist pump over in the, in the corner. I got a little <laughs> bit teared up. Right. And uh, I think that this is a movie that does that. And it really gets there in a really um, profound fashion. So a surprising movie in a lot of ways, especially a movie that is so funny and so about an invisible six, three rabbit from the 1950s. It sounds like it has a lot going against it. Right. But it really pulls it off. I think spectacularly. Um, and that's, that's what I think. Anyway, I want to hear what Grossman has to say. Grossman Aaron M. Uh, yes. Uh, I am glad that we all like this movie because I, I really like this movie too. Um, Harvey has this kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably, uh, well, I'm definitely repeating stuff a little bit, but it has this kind of warm, uh, and I spent a little while trying to think of it, like sweetness to it, um, but like sentimentality maybe, which I think is is often kind of a term that um, is critical, right? Like uh, if a movie that gets called sentimental, it's often kind of a critique of like how this kind of nicer nature kind of is used as kind of this, this, this to like board up over all these other problems uh, that the film could be talking about. And I think that sentimentality in general has been kind of a, a negative thing, I think, especially in recent years for your, your film to be, although maybe that's kind of a reaction to, to kind of larger issues. Um, but I, I think it really works in this film. And I think that it, it works due to the, the presence of kind of for my money, I think maybe the most kind of like wonderfully sentimental actor to like ever star in an English language film. Um, not like maybe my favorite actor of all time, but I think like, the the vibe that that Stewart gives in this film was like so like unmatched um and and you can name i think any number of films where where he gives that kind of a performance um you know i said earlier this year in our our wings of desire episode that i, I don't think i was going to get like a just like a warmer nicer performance like an easier performance to watch than than peter falks in that film i i think i was wrong uh watching uh, uh james stewart here i think that his his performance is kind of um despite the charisma, very, very intensely kind of understated. Um, I mean, it, there's a lot been brought up about kind of the speeches in this film, uh, one specific monologue, 
uh, the dialogue. Uh, but I think even kind of further than that, I think this is kind of um, primarily a, a very physical performance, just especially his face and his kind of body language. Um, the way that he reacts to the people that he meets, um, you know, he, he is very genuinely interested and curious and excited about every single person, no matter who they are, uh, that he comes across and no matter what their opinion of him is right. Uh, he kind of has this, this kind of, he kind of jumps to attention whenever he sees somebody new and the way that he genuinely, uh, kind of starts reaching for like a, you know, his card to kind of hand somebody is like, it's, it's really wonderful um, to watch. And I think that there's kind of two interesting things that this film, I don't know if it's intentionally doing, but there's kind of two, two aspects that I, I really was kind of interested in as I was watching it. The first is I think this film was interesting as a, a film that is looking at um, social mores. I think that the, the film is kind of, saying overall, despite what the cab driver says at the end of the film, I think it's saying that it really isn't your kind of normal human being who is flawed, um, but normal human beings live in a flawed society. Um, and in that manner, I think that this is a very deeply empathetic film. Um, and, and secondly, kind of tying into that, I think that um, this film is interesting as a critique of the way that the I guess at the time, uh, modern society dealt with people with mental issues. Um, I, I was kind of trying like timeline wise to tie this into one flew over the cuckoo's nest which is i think primarily known at this point is the the 1975 film uh but was also originally a, a 1962 book that's kind of 12 years of difference maybe that's like too large to to make a connection between the two especially given the fact that, that this was based on a play from 1944 um but I, I think it could be argued and i would argue um that this both of the both of those works kind of represent a, an overall societal shift in how the um, mentally unwell and, and mentally ill are are looked at and kind of a criticism of how we treat them and take care of them. Um, and I think in this in that way uh, and kind of tied into to Stewart's performance as a whole, I think there are aspects of this film that feel a bit dated, that feel that maybe bog it down a little bit, specifically with gender roles and whatnot. But I think primarily I, I view this film as kind of very far ahead of its time in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I really enjoyed, I, I frankly, I was taken by this film. Uh, I was not really aware of it. Uh, I think maybe it's kind of slept by the, the wayside there over the years. I don't know, but um, I, I had a great time watching Harvey. Yeah. Um, uh, that first point that you made, Aaron, I think you characterized really, really well what this movie is doing about um, the empathy toward people and the, the conflict with sort of like, not necessarily human nature, but the way humans want to be versus society and, and what society makes them be, right? Like, I think all of the characters in this movie, especially um, Harvey's immediate family members, right? Um, uh, Vita and... Uh, um, Myrtle, uh, they are, they're sort of like, they're, they're distracted, right? Like everybody in this movie is, is sort of distracted by the things that they have to do or the people that they think they have to be, right? Like they're all trying to accomplish something. They all have sort of like their work in mind. And that sort of, it keeps them from seeing the people around them and even worse sort of makes the people around them into obstacles or into uh, problems. Like they want to deal with doubt to the point where they want to put him away. Whereas like 
Dowd is is he represents the complete opposite of that, right? Where like the minute he's like he's like a child, or even not to be so too pejorative, but like like uh, there's that famous expression of of like when a dog sees you, like everything else it was going to do that day is just gone. That's how he is with people, right? Is that like the minute he meets somebody, the fact that he's meeting somebody new is now like that's what he's doing. Like that's the most important part of his day. It takes precedence over everything else, um, and just being able to give that presence to other people it's it's considered in this movie almost insane not to use um ableist language but like that's the that's the idea they're going for but it it's also like you see the effect it has on people right it's like that's the way it should be right like everyone should treat one another with that much interest because it's it's people are worthy of that much interest and i think that this movie sort of like it it makes that point because it demonstrates how when um, when they are given this uh, attention, they become worthy of that interest, right? Like Dowd gives that to them. He he brings it out of them. And that's, um, it's really great because it's like, there are a lot of different ways this movie could break, right? It could, it could end up being sort of hateful toward any number of people as targets. And it really manages to, to instead direct this sort of um, criticism toward the the mechanism of society and maybe like i don't know capitalism in the in terms of like sort of work life um itself without disparaging any person or any one person as a perpetuator of it without losing any of the poignance and sharpness of the critique and that's a really delicate tightrope i think that that this movie pulls off really well so i just wanted to say that i i think that's a really good thing to pay attention to when it comes to this movie yeah, I, I I've been I've kind of spent while doing research for the the you know the summary and whatnot earlier. I kind of spent a while tracking down information that I could find on um, on Wikipedia for the the movie and for the, the play. Uh, it's it's listed that that Steven Spielberg was trying to uh, he was kind of attached to a, a you know a, a project to kind of um, make a, another version of Harvey. Um, and there's not much information. I mean, the the information on the the, the film page and then the um, the the play the page for the play uh, kind of differ. But the 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 film page says like, hey, he dropped out due to disputes, and it doesn't really list what that was. Um, and then the play specifically says that like he dropped out cause he couldn't find an actor to play Elwood Dowd. Um, and maybe that's a little, yeah. Like I, I think maybe there's a, there's a bit of that that's maybe kind of, uh, uh, hyped up a little bit, but like, I, I do really have a, a very hard time. Um, I mean, the actor who was mentioned, uh, is, uh, uh, it, it says, um, uh, Robert Downey Jr., for example, uh, Tom Hanks. I think maybe Tom Hanks could could do Tom it. Tom Hanks uh, is probably the, the modern comparison. I don't think I, I, I have a hard right. time thinking of anybody else that like. And and there's so many good actors, but like something about this performance, about that kind of wide eyed, curious nature, um, it seems impossible. I, I don't know how you would recast it, and it's it's so so wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I. But all the all the articles on the on the that adaptation of the film are kind of deleted and old now so uh, it's unfortunate but yeah i it, it seems ripe for a remake but it I would mean, you cast cody uh, cody I, you gotta have I, an I, idea I, no uh, tom hanks is the way to go like i i wish i had a better option but like it it's the logic that like does not like it, it gets ignored now but it's like why would you remake something if it's not going to be better than the original just like i don't know I, I feel like it'd be hard to top this um so i don't know why anybody would try uh period but yeah i guess adding to the um 
uh, what you were talking about, Harry, the, the sort of like you as yourself versus what, like what the world wants you to be, what sort of boxes um, like other people and society want to like place you in one scene that maybe moved me the most out of any in this movie. Um, and I was, I, for the life of me in the moment, I couldn't figure out why it was so like, it, it really gripped me. Um, but it was the scene where, it was actually just before the alleyway sequence. Um, so we're in the interior of Charlie's and it's um, at this point, it's just uh, Elwood P. Dowd and then Dr. Sanderson and Miss Kelly sort of in the booth. And um, it, it's that sort of like, not necessarily like the will they won't they between Miss Kelly and, and Elwood. Like it's kind of one-sided because Elwood's the way he is. Um, but it's like um, Elwood suggests that uh, Dr. Sanderson ask Miss Kelly to dance. And so they go dance. And then, after they leave, it's just like you get a, a, a maybe a shot or two of like Sanderson and Miss Kelly, like kind of exchanging looks with each other, looking at um, Elwood through the crowd of people. And then it's just like a close up of James Stewart sitting silently Man. and content, content in the booth. And it, it just like what I've come around to, I, I guess my best rationalization of like why that scene really hit. It's just like in that moment, it's like a sort of apex in his not necessarily in his development. I don't, I don't know how much he changes in this movie, but like in our understanding of him, just like at this point right now, we, and like the other people, like they're, they're really just, he's just a guy, you know, he's just some dude. He, uh, you know, he was a, a great wingman in that moment for his buddy Sanderson, who uh, like Elwood sees Sanderson and Miss Kelly as like two like dear devoted friends, despite them just having met earlier that day. And he's just, he's like, just this look of supreme contentment on this face. And we sort of forget for a moment that he's this man with this six foot, three and a half foot or six foot, three and a half inch tall, like rabbit friend. Who's like out and about with Dr. Chumley somewhere. And it just like, it's like that beat in, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of examples like that we've talked about in like Miyazaki movies, where it's just like this moment where we're sort of taking a breath and like, I don't know, we're digesting some emotional beat, and it's just so it's oh wow, it's so like heavy and profound. I don't know. It it really like I've I've thought about it a lot the last couple of days um, since we watched this. So I don't know if that works as sort of like an illustrating point, but like that's like it it's such a, a crucial um, like conversation and like. I don't know. Doubt is, uh, I mean, a, a great case study for the sort of like individuality versus like the types of things that the world would rather you be instead of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything that you guys have been talking about leading up to this point is like, it comes back to, I think that empathy versus society idea that Harry brought up, um, like that. I mean, that scene specifically, Cody, I think is a really good exemplifier of that where, um, you know, where Elwood sort of peaks as just a guy, uh, and what is happening to Dr. Sanderson and Miss Kelly in the background, like that is where they have their Harvey moment. I think, um, up to that point, they're focused on, uh, you know, being or diagnosing and finding and fixing and like their responsibilities and duties as the movie later says. Um, and I think like, everybody in this movie except like except the magical avatar of wisdom and peacefulness uh elwood everybody has a moment like that in this movie um you know back to where they're now focused on you know being each uh, being with each other being together being themselves rather than being doctor and nurse or doctor and assistant um you know like that i think ties back ties into that whole concept of like what harvey is to the movie and is to the the point and is to the story is like I mean, yeah, one guy is talking to an invisible tall rabbit about, you know, making friends um, and drinking good martinis. But 
you know, Vera, excuse me, Vita and um, uh, Matt, Maggie, Martha, jeez, too many M names. Uh, um, are you thinking of Myrtle May? Myrtle, sorry, two Myrtle, M's and one name, really. Yeah, yeah. and I didn't get either of them. Myrtle and uh, Vera and uh, Myrtle May are both focused on, you know, they're chasing this like formless idea of status uh, crafted by someone else's great grandparents hundreds of years ago to uh, specifically to exclude people, uh, you know, who, who really needs reforming in that case, <laughs> who has the harmful outlook on life, right? Who is like the one who should be institutionalized, yes. I guess, to be to be very to be very blunt and mean about it. Who who like what what lens are we seeing these characters through? And that I think Cody is the scene. Why why that hits so hard for me is because it is that moment for them. Like Vita and Myrtle may have it in their own ways, um, and you know at different times in the movie. But for them, for this like little love bird pair in the middle of the movie, that is where they have that moment of like now we're not focused on duties, responsibilities, and what society expects or what our jobs expect. We are focused on. I'm like, finally, Dr. Sanderson is focused on Kelly, who's been really like batting eyes the whole movie. And finally, uh, you know, she's, she's getting sort of what she wants out of that dyad now, you know, something that she's wanted for a long time. Um, Cody, or sorry, Aaron, did I take that too far away from the point you were going to make? I can't remember what the point. I have no, I have no idea what the point I, I put my hand down, you know, I'm getting called on in class. I don't have anything. Uh, no, I, I don't uh, want to put you on the spot. Just wanted to make the sure that there wasn't anything squeaky else. Squeaky shoes are very funny. That is one note that I took down. <laughs> Super <laughs> funny. Yeah. Remember, remember the squeaky shoes? That was very good. <laughs> uh, this is a. It's an awkward transition. Peggy Dow, man. Uh, like top top ten oh, hottest Jesus, people who ever lived. Come on, <sighs> Harry. That, we talked about this, time, man. Anyway, yeah, uh, and the the game that Dowd is running on her throughout this movie is incredible. The man cannot added with he's uh he's got a full game like like nothing i've ever harry seen slips that in there harry is microphone electrocutes him to death because he's sweating so hard over it that's right uh, uh yeah <laughs> I, I wanted to i wanted to say um that uh well shit now i'm losing what i was gonna say um oh i um i thought that saying oh like that would oh i've got it for real now um <laughs> so the the scene that cody mentioned it's it's interesting because I, I think that that gets at a another sort of tightrope that this movie is is walking vis a vis sort of Dowd's understanding of his condition that is never explicitly addressed, but only sort of like played with to the point where you begin to understand that it doesn't matter, right? But there's some sense that that what doubt is doing is intentional, which I believe it is, right? Like I believe that that doubt is, as he says, he's consciously affecting the personality that he has because being pleasant in that way has such a great effect on the people around him. Um, so he's doing it purposefully. It is never clear to me, at least, whether he knows that Harvey is like either a, a delusion or if Harvey is real within the, the confines of this movie or what. I think that the movie's point is that it doesn't matter because of the effect that it has in the end, right? Is that like the fact that it, it, it almost like it doesn't matter what is affecting you. What matters is what you do with it. And the fact that Dowd is capable of turning this either delusion or sort of magical realist companion or knowing understanding of a way that he is presenting himself to other people into this joy and community and um, unlocking of people's interiorities makes it something that is worth having in this world, right? It makes something that that's worthwhile. And um, to, to respond to Cody's point, uh, 
I think that 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 scene where he is alone at the bar and he's sort of just happily watching them, it it almost bookends the monologue where he really describes his life philosophy. And I think we really see it in effect there, right? Where it's like, Getting these two people who are clearly, you know, love each other to see that they love each other again was like his objective all along, irregardless of whether he actually wanted them to introduce them to Harvey or he wanted to be friends with them. What he wanted was to to be that person, that catalyst for reigniting their sort of original and either sort of like latent or um or repressed feelings. And um, I think that he pulls it off there, right? And and the movie is so aware of that, that like it can really write into it. Um, and therefore, there are just some lines that hit like a train in this movie. I think that like the way that Jimmy Stewart specifically says, nobody ever brings anything small into a bar uh, during that monologue was like, absolutely like getting crushed right and there are there are a couple of moments like that and i think that they're they're further accentuated by the fact that you never really see them coming right which i think that if the movie was more overwritten or if it was more obvious you might see them coming i think that that there's maybe one example um counter example i'm thinking of which is the the cab driver i think that the the end of the cab driver's monologue is like a little bit too telegraphing but it it only goes to show how the rest of the movie is so um, tone perfect in that way. I think. Telegraph it. What's wrong with the telegraphing? I I like a, a big Jimmy Stewart movie where the the moral is telegraphed at the end. I don't know. That's like a, it it kind of ties back into the sentimentality I was talking about. It just kind of hits you. Uh, mm-hmm, and when it's mm-hmm. done bad, it's like the worst shit in the entire universe. But when it's done well, I I don't know. I, I dig it. I dig I dig a, a kind of magical cab driver showing up and being like. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't jab that guy with a needle and it's like dipping out for a minute. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of nice. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is I, I do tie back to a, a point Harry made a little while ago, but the the I I, I dig the the lack of uh, kind of explanation for. I mean, I think we're supposed to to buy that that Harvey like is real, right? I don't think there's really a reading of the film that makes too much sense where Harvey is not actually like a some sort of hobgoblin. Right. Um, but I, I kind of dig the, the lack of like an explanation for, uh, uh, for why Dowd, um, sees Harvey and for his kind of good natured, um, you know, kind of disposition and all of that. Um, I, I really dig that. There's, there's a scene that that works quite well where they're kind of outside of the bar. Um, and the, the kind of the doctor, uh, Dr. Sanderson, um, keeps trying to like come up with some sort of explanation. Like, did you, did you have somebody in your childhood? Did you, you know, he runs by a bunch of reasons. Like, do you know somebody named Harvey? Um, and he, and you know, Dowd keeps shooting him down. Um, and I, I kind of read that as like a very, um, a very critical take at a lot of like psychiatric and psychological practices and whatnot from, from this era, probably ones that were coming, uh, becoming quite a bit more popular around this time. Um, it, it, I think this movie is kind of saying that like, regardless of what like the real reason is, it, it kind of the, the end result is the thing here, right? And the end result is a person who is kind of just naturally nicer and more kind hearted uh, than the people around him. And it comes with some kind of baggage, I guess, uh, uh, and that he's, he can be kind of weird in certain social situations. Um, but I, I think the film is basically saying like, it kind of doesn't matter why he's this way. Right. Um, or maybe there isn't even a reason that he's this way, but the, it's kind of the end result. That's kind of the main point. And I, I really dig that, I guess. 
I think my point or what I was going to say is pretty much answered by what you just said, Aaron. I was going to, I was curious about like the moments where Harvey does, where like his existence is made real, where he is opening doors on his own, where he is, uh, you know, writing in, uh, in an encyclopedia before, uh, Wilson can read it sort of thing. Um, really good bits, but like, I was, I was wondering if that for anybody did that alter the effectiveness of, of the, this symbology for you? Did it like change anything about, or was it just like, again, this doesn't matter to the world of the movie and it doesn't matter to me as a viewer. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I, uh, it altered it and that I, I really liked those, those elements, right? Like not, I, I think there's, there's a, a version of this movie you could make where, uh, you know, there's kind of a dark twist at the end where like, Oh, doubt actually, has been making this up, right? But he's doing it to try and instill some sort of good spirit in the people around him. Um, and and I'm sure that version of this story is is just fine uh, as well, or could be, right? Um, but I, I I kind of like the I dug like the old timey explanation uh, for Harvey, right? The fact that he's not just like uh, some sort of imaginary friend, but like he's an imaginary friend that's like steeped in like this old like Celtic lore, right? He's like a yeah, he's like a the, the puka, right? The puka, yeah. I mean, a puka. It's like literally a hobgoblin, right? It's like some sort of kind of tricksy spirit um, that that exists and kind of plays like lighthearted uh, yet kind of funny jokes on people. Um, and I really dug that one because I just kind of dig that kind of shit anyway. Um, but I think there is kind of like a an old timey like community based or like it, it it ties into kind of the main themes of like modern society being the thing that's dragging a lot of these people down right and i think that the fact that there's this kind of mythological element that is this bringing this this one character who is in turn bringing all these other people kind of back to this more kind of natural kind of kind-hearted way of, of being um i think there's something there that's like very interesting uh that i appreciate quite a bit uh it didn't kind of hit me until more of these elements kind of get introduced over the course of the film. And I really thought there was, there was something, um, something there that, that I, I appreciated. I just think it was like the perfect balance to hit. I, I really love the idea of, of this sort of existential entity in the form of Harvey, where it's like the movie itself is saying like, well, if it, if it really has this effect and he really believes in it, isn't it real? But, but it's not doing the thing a lot of movies do where it, it makes it clear that it is uh, us who's generating that and so it, it's in effect not real except in what we make it this one takes it further and sort of like applies the form of how Dowd would think about it to the movie itself where it's like I think that that the reading Aaron that you mentioned where this is all sort of like a folly deed do or a folly deed everyone who comes into contact with uh, Harvey um, and Harvey is is more psychological. I think that that can still exist within this movie. I think the point is kind of that it could be either or in, in some ways, but um, I really love the idea that, that we keep the door open fully using sort of movie magic and the suspension of uh, strict logic to say that, that uh, Harvey could also just be an entity that exists. And even like further that, even if Harvey is an entity that exists, that doesn't mean that it's not something that Dowd himself is doing, right? Like that, that we can sort of in that way, because of the way that we're sort of um, squinting at it, we can have our cake and eat it too, where it's like, it's something that is consciously affected by Dowd and it's something that is real (laughs) and that exists in the world, right? It's a really great way to, again, sort of like make that tightrope balance um, work so well. You know what this like this conversation? It's making me thinking of. I, I mean, we're talking about all like the the different things that this movie is and the various tightropes it's walking. Um, 
like this conversation of like Harvey as like physical being ver- slash like manifestation or representation of like uh, attitudes and, and what have you, like, it, it makes me think of, I don't know, like the edited differently or, and like written differently, this movie could have been like a horror film. Uh, and like thinking back and actually in the, when we were watching the, the scene where, uh, Dr. Sanderson and Miss Kelly are like, they're sitting down with Elwood and they have this certain opinion of him. And like, they, they, I don't know, they, they've got the situation backwards, obviously. And it's, um, also like a, a incredibly well acted scene as are many of these scenes by James Stewart, because he's like winking and nudging, uh, this invisible rabbit sitting next to him. But like coming away from that sequence, it, it's like, like interviewing, a suspect in like that, like, like we're watching Zodiac or something like somebody gets out of the conversation. You have this like weird, um, like dramatically ironic sinking feeling. That's like the person who just walked out of the room, like got away with something. You know what I mean? Um, Damn, what a good not, point. Obviously that's not this movie, but like, I, like thinking about, you know, like the, the Babadook, like, Oh, the Babadook is real. Or like the Babadook is, you know, like representative of like familial angst or trauma. I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. Um, so I don't know, like a, a lot of the similar energy here for whatever that's worth. I just wanted to float that out there in case it resonated. The same effort said Babadook. <laughs> he said Babadook. Babadook. What? Whatever. Whatever. I thought everybody was going to jump on that one, but never mind. No, I'm, no, I'm choosing cares. to be pleasant. I'm choosing to be pleasant rather than smart. <laughs> oh, no, God. Leave the room, Aaron. Come on. Uh, I, I just wanted to respond. It kind of ties into what Cody said, but also um, Aaron talking about the sort of like the reason why Harvey exists, because in an interesting way, I think you're right, and I really like that there's no sort of concrete explanation, but also like as we delve further into the psychology of Dowd, um, there is sort of a uh, surmisable explanation as to why Harvey came into his life in this way, right? And I think that that's kind of where the heart of the the movie lives in some ways. So we haven't talked about it a lot yet, but like Dowd is obviously a, a traumatized individual, right? He's obviously in like a, a terrible state of grief, having lost his um, grandmother and his uh, parents, I believe. And... Um, and maybe just like having a life that that he didn't think he was going to have or or you know what whatever it may be the the point is that his grief itself is very relatable right because it's sort of a grief that everybody has and that um Harvey is a coping mechanism in the in the same way as like a Lars and the real girl or something um but ultimately this movie ends up in a really great place with that coping mechanism which is that like if you actually genuinely have agency over it, which I think that, that we're, we're shown that Dow does, um, then it, it's something that you're doing for yourself and it, it is real and it is something that is good, right? It's not a crutch. Like there's, there's this constant sort of like pressure for Dow to grow up and be a man and sort of like, uh, leave behind childish things like this. And the movie has this great courage to combat that, right? And say that, no, like this is Dowd's version of being a man. This is his version of self-actualizing and constructing an identity for himself that is good for the world and good for himself. And it's better than the one that we do by having to say like these things, you know, like, like, oh, I have to confront this or I have to do whatever, you know, I have to, I have to conform in this way. Um, and I, I think that that's a really important aspect of this and it really, um, it fills out the rest of the, um, 
the movie really well, right? There's this sort of like this really beautiful um, undercurrent of sadness to Dowd's character and to really all of these characters that that manifests after um, close examination, right? It's sort of a, it's a really fascinating movie in that it's so funny and it's so screwball. And then it just sort of like slowly um, brings this out of people, not unlike Dowd bringing it out of the psychiatrist himself, right? Where Dowd has this long conversation with the psychiatrist and you can see them very, very humorously, like slowly assuming the position of a therapist and a patient where like Dowd sits down in this chair and sort of crosses his legs and leans forward. And the psychiatrist sort of like first he sits on the couch and then he slowly starts to lay down. And and then like you, by the time you see it, it's, it's happening already. It's a really, really funny, really great scene, really sharp scene. But like it is also legitimately like the psychiatrist is is breaking down basically, right? Like he's he's explaining his burdens to Dowd and doubt is helping him with that and it's saying like look the the quote-unquote inmates are running the asylum and like doubt can do this because of who he is and so who are we to tell him that he's wrong right in fact obviously he's right in this position folks i have a question a uh, very important question uh maybe we've all been thinking and i'm gonna ask it and uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna need you to think about it for a minute don't just answer off the cuff it's very important should they have uh, shown the rabbit? Should there have been a scene at the end of the film where, boom, you see the rabbit? Why? Don't come on. No. I was, um, I think I, I'd seen a promotional image where James Stewart is talking to like a shadow of a rabbit. They may yeah. have been actually on the Trilon website. And so part of me was like waiting for that to happen. That that yeah. would have been the most that I maybe would have wanted to see just from my own little like giddy moviegoer brain. But um, I don't know. I think ultimately everything works better when we don't actually yeah. see like a, a physical presence or outline I, of them. I don't yeah, think, I think it would I got... ruined it, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jason. I think I got exactly what I wanted from the last uh, shot right where it says Harvey as himself and the door opens and it's just invisible that was so funny and that was like that was what I wanted from it what did you think Aaron I also I think come to the conclusion no but I was I guess anticipating a scene where everybody who doubted him over the course of the film would at the end be swayed and would of course see Harvey uh, and well, that would be the end I don't know it's I, foreshadowed I I, with with the the painting right like what, right who, who, exactly. the fuck, who the fuck made that painting <laughs> that is a very good question. Who well, did he well, pay? Is it? I mean, is it a painting or is it a photograph? Am I ah! right? <laughs> I think it's a painting. I, yeah, I think yeah, it's, a I mean, painting. yeah it's a painting. But. Yeah. Thanks for killing the joke, though, Aaron. Way to be smart. Um, I, uh, I, I, I will say, like, just in closing about that whole idea, like that scene, Harry, where, um, where the actual doctor or doctor psychiatrist, whatever he runs the sanitarium um, is actually like, he's in the fainting couch. He's uh, he's on the, on the couch while Elwood is sort of playing psychiatrist to him. Um, like just preceding that scene, he is sorry. The, the sanitarium guy is completely terrified of the idea of Harvey. Like he's running from him. Yes. He tries to escape out a window. Like he is, he is getting away from Harvey as best he can. And like, the only way I can justify that, that change is like to him of, you know, that scene where he's escaping Harvey rather than like accepting and, and really like marveling at the possibilities of a Harvey. It's like, it, it'd be if he were to like see or accept or, you know, um, or admit 
uh, that Harvey exists, it would be an admission that the way he lives, the things he's beholden to, the society that he helps perpetuate is bullshit, right? Like it is, it would be not just like, oh no, there's a rabbit following me. I don't like the idea of a big, scary rabbit. It is, it, it would mean a lot more in the context of that character and in the context of every character in this movie, if any of them see see the, the actual, like, rat, if they, any of them admit that he's real. Like, uh, Vera, Vita has the same thing, right, when she first meets uh, Dr. Sanderson and says, I would never tell anybody this, but I actually see the rabbit too sometimes, you know? There's almost, as you said with the foreshadowing, there's almost a, a suggestion that, like, when Dowd's work upon this world is done and when we live in a better world where people are more present, then maybe everyone will slowly start to see Harvey, right? He's almost magical in that way where it, where it's like when, when we're ready, he will appear, you know? Um, and I really love that. I really love the, like the existential implications of something like that, right? Like it, it has really obvious metaphorical ramifications for things like religion, for things like belief in the, uh, inherent goodness or, um, worthiness of man in the sort of sense that it's like at a certain point it stops mattering whether it's true it's about what it allows you to do and more importantly what it allows you to do for other people right and i think that this is a really um poignant and uh beautiful expression of that metaphor this movie is and i think that it it does it with with some really surprising and really beautiful um effects absolutely with a plum uh, well, I'll open the floor now to final thoughts. I'll kick us off with, um, I believe that the best slapstick in the movie in a movie where there's, like Harry said, considerable slapstick in the first 30 minutes or so. I think the best slapstick is when uh, Mr. Minninger, that is played by Sam Wolf, he slips on the polished floor on the way out of his courthouse to go tail Elwood for, uh, for <laughs> Vita. And he just like he just kind of gives up halfway through sliding and bonks his head against, against the door of the surgeon down the hall. Like that's just funny. Like the character disappears for the whole movie because of only that. I love that. It's like a world record long jump. It's like, he goes like 35 <laughs> feet down the hallway. It's, it's, so it's massive. It's so because there's no like music or sound effects is accompanied with it. Just like the realistic squeaking and then thud. Oh man, that's so good. Anybody Do else we- got any, are, is it a is there like a fan theory where Harvey spilled the water as a prank in order to delay? Oh him? boy! Think well, about yeah, it. he he would in fact be invalidating the uh, the long arm of the law, right? Like he would be uh, preventing a. You think uh, Harvey is like an A cab? Harvey said A cab. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, it's so hard to choose a favorite funny moment because there are a lot of like shockingly funny moments it's sort of the old uh silent picture thing we talked about a couple episodes ago where like there's something about the fact that um you're not expecting the humor to be as sharp as it is that makes it even funnier right but um i think that uh in particular josephine hall is so good in this movie and um yeah one yeah. thing that i always remember is at their sort of like soiree their their big fancy party when the opera singer all of a sudden starts singing like hop hop hippity hop and she just gets this wide-eyed expression <laughs> and she's like oh no that that was so funny to me um i really really loved that um uh let's see there are there are just a lot of really great moments. I think that like Dowd continuously asking people, well, what'd you have in mind <laughs> when somebody asks like, is there <laughs> anything I can do for you? And they're always like immediately taken aback. And that's almost a like, that's, that's almost a like twist that gets them to come out of their shells a little bit and actually like have the conversation they're having. Um, I really love that. Um, and I just really love also um, like uh, 
Dowd's like love and fascination for drinking where he's always trying to get people to drink and somebody will say like, we should have a drink. And he just gets this like light in his eye. It's really good. I just, what a charming character. (laughs) Does anybody else have any really funny moments that they remember? I'm struggling to think of individual ones, but Dowd may have invented the dad joke. He has a lot of great like dad, just like dad jokey responses to people uh, talking to him. Uh, that I, think I really like. I think it's time for you to learn Premiere, Aaron, so that you can make a Harvey Guy Funny Moments movie. Or I would, excuse me, I would YouTube make video. A, I would make a, a Dow oh my fan God. cam for sure. Oh, no, a, make a Harvey, a Harvey fan cam. cam. Oh, Come Jesus on. Christ. We <laughs> joke too much about <laughs> Harvey. Funny, funny to one out of 100 people, but they would find it very funny. I think. You don't you understand our audience, do we? You've been doing this for a long time I to say something true. that dumb. <laughs> Uh, oh, another really great thing is like um, the fact that that the the psychiatrist who's like this up and coming and very pretentious doctor is that Doctor Lyman or is that Doctor William? Which one? I can't remember. But the younger one doctors. who has the thing with Miss Kelly Sanderson. And, yes. Okay, Sanderson. Yeah, and he's obviously um, he's like struggling so hard to deal with her affection for him, and like he really wants to be a certain way, and like to contrast that with like how incredibly uh, well Dowd is able to converse with her and the way that she opens up around him and the way that he like he like flatters her so easily and so naturally it's so funny it's such a great takedown of that guy like every time Elwood is able to just make her like blush and smile just by like completely being himself like it's the easiest thing in the world and this guy's just like it's so good like what a great takedown of of guys like that (laughs) really does uh leave him completely aghast by being way more charming than he could ever be in his own scene good god uh, yeah, this is a really fucking good movie. Uh, well, that's been our actual discussion. Harry, uh, you've got a little something for us, right? Before we before we head out? Why, yes, I do. It's uh, my favorite segment of the show. It's the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, gents. Dang. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, very committed introduction. Uh, Harvey is but one of many great rabbits throughout cinematic history. And he allows us, uh, I think, a, a pretty perfect opportunity to highlight some of some of those other brilliant bunnies. Uh, now, I know we do this this uh, this little segment every week, you know, this bit, you know, we come, we do the noties and we leave. It's, it's pretty automatic at this point, so much so that I'd argue we're doing this by <clears throat> force of rabbit. Wow. I keep my mic off so that I don't let background sounds come in, but know that I let out a ha when you said <laughs> I that. I need to let it sit for a two seconds. I'm like, let it, let it go down. Let it, let it, my palate change. That's nice. You got to chew like on that. it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I look away yeah. from the mic to breathe out. <laughs> <laughs> Minnesota native. That's right. Uh, some stay dry and others feel the pain. Well, thank you. I, I wasn't sure of that one myself this week. Uh, I don't know. For some reason it was challenging to get a halfway decent name, but if that, that was works incredible. for y'all. Okay. Well, way too kind. Um, gee, who are you? Elwood P. Dowd, uh, Elwood P. Dowd. Got a freaking Elwood P. Dowd over here. What I'll do, <laughs> what we're going to do here is, uh, before I trip over myself further, I, I'm going to present each movie rabbit related trivia tidbit kind of a mouthful, uh, one at a time. After each statement, I will ask y'all in, uh, we'll do alphabetical by first name order. Um, I'll ask you in that order to respond one at a time. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in, starting with uh, Thumper uh, for number one here, that little 
horny bastard from Disney's Bambi uh, from the year 1942. Uh, now, the villain of Bambi is solely listed as quote unquote man. Um, I, I do believe so. Uh, and Ain't that and the man. truth? Damn. Uh, man, uh, big, big, big evergreen mood. Uh, man made the AFI's top 100 villains list, which was compiled in the year 2003. Uh, and man came in at number 20 on that list. Uh, number 20 on that list of 100. Uh, what I'll ask you, I'm going to give you three other movie villains, and I want to know which one of the following villains did not come in ahead of man on the top villains list. So which one Which one of these was not uh, ahead of man? So we've got Jack Torrance, played by uh, uh, Mr. Nicholson himself in 1980's The Shining. We've got Phyllis Dietrichson, played by Barbara Stanwyck in 1944's Double Indemnity, a previous episode, by the way. And we've got The Shark, Played by, um, well, nobody except a, a mechanical <laughs> shark, affection, affectionately known as Bruce uh, on set from 1975's Jaws. So which one of those did not come in ahead of man on the all-time villains list from 2003? Aaron, what are you thinking? Can, can I ask uh, just a real quick clarification about the the intro sure. to this question? Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Bambi, but I know that the hunter shoots Bambi's mom right Correct. is man meant to be singular as in man like that man or man meant to be universal as in all, mankind all of men you know human you know what i mean that's is honestly a, a really good qu- yeah that's a good question i think um there's like jeff like, the it, hunter no i i think i think i think technically speaking the attribution of man is meant for that specific hunter um i, I think textually that's the case that being said however um, yeah however dot 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 you know I wonder if AFI just has to like in in the credits it just says like you know Jeff man and then they just have to use man is the <laughs> parentheses. Article. in parentheses yeah. they're like man parentheses it's the fucking hunter fucking guy what shot <laughs> yeah. <his> mom dude <laughs> uh, and Brian Stewart the hunter I will answer now and I'll I'll, I'll actually uh, this is a hard one I, whatever one you made up here you did a great job at I'm gonna go with uh, Torrance uh, although that's yeah I'm gonna do that. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got you penciled in for Torrance. Uh, what can I pencil Harry in for? Um, it's a. This is a really great question, Cody. First of all, I you keep coming up with new and different creative ways to do this, and it's so much fun. So thank you. Um, I think I'm going to go with Dietrichson. Um, I want her to be higher than man. Uh, she deserves it, but I think that she's a little bit less iconic in the conventional sense than the other two. So I'm choosing that. Gotcha. Uh, Dietrichson for Harry and Jason. What's your picky? Can I ask a clarifying question about um, who published this list? Uh, AFI, uh, American Film Institute, is that the the long form? Uh, yeah, so yep, AFI, so. not okay. not the not the famous emo band, but the you know the movie guild. Okay, I feel like since it's a group of like well known movie cinema dweebs, that Dietrichson would would be above man. Um, so I'm going to say uh, Jack Torrance. Torrance for Jason. Uh, the correct answer is, in fact, Jack Torrance. Um, so uh, in this case, Aaron and Jason get the points. Uh, Torrance came in as uh, the number 25 villain True. on this list behind number 20. Um, again, man, wow. uh, Jeff, whatever his name might be. Uh, <laughs> Bruce, the animatronic shark, got the number 18 slot. Uh, so just above. And Phyllis Dietrichson got all the way up to number eight. That was... Yeah. I did not expect that. I mean, well-earned, but Jesus, I um, did. Did we? I think I remember from maybe. the episode we did on that. I believe there was a question. Of, that's why I didn't guess her because I 
sure. I believe there was a Cody's Noties question on that. I could be wrong, but our viewers, I'm oh, sure, will reach out and let us know. Yeah, those eagle-eyed and eagle-deared viewers that have uh, a better memory about this sort of stuff than I certainly do. Um, yeah, in any case, the, the fact that Dietrichson was on that list at all, um, I don't know, double indemnity. Uh, glad it. Uh, glad that, um, frankly, We Must Stanwick is is getting some recognition. Um, as an artist, not necessarily as a person. Um, listen to previous episodes about uh, that particular <laughs> conversation. Uh, for number two here, uh, next up, we've got Roger Rabbit from the 1988 film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This uh, this movie, it's still pretty impressive. Uh, as impressive today as as it was when it was released over 30 years ago, back when it won four Academy Awards. Uh, I'm going to list three awards, and I want uh, I, what I'm hoping is that uh, y'all can tell me which one of the following Oscar categories did Who Framed Roger Rabbit not win the Oscar for? So we've got three here. The categories are, and I, I know we're very good at, at this type of question, so I, I assume we'll have no problem, but we've got Best Film Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Sound. Uh, really a <laughs> tough decision. Um, so, so which one of those three did Who Framed Roger Rabbit not win the Oscar for, Aaron? I'm going to say it's between sound editing and sound for me, and I'm going to assume there are a lot of really fantastic, like, boops and boings and whatnot. So I'm going to, I guess that would be it. I'm going to go with it did not win Best Sound. All right, Aaron is going with Best Sound. Uh, Harry, what are you going with? Uh, Aaron just explained my thought process to a T, so I think I'm also going to go with Best Sound. The boop and bang, bong theory is what you're... Yeah, well, and, but there is, that, there is that moment where the guy goes, when I killed your brother, I sounded just like this! And I really love that scene, and I don't know, maybe they gave it the Oscar just for that. Hey, uh, I mean, they should have given uh, Christopher Lloyd the Oscar, if anything. I believe that was his character. Um, but regardless, uh, that's a different notey. Uh, Jason, what is your what is your guess for this question? I've never seen Who Framed Roger Ebert, and I'm going to say editing. All right. Best Sorry, Jason, you've edit. never seen what? I make Roger fun Robert. of Cody for the Babadook, and, but now, Jason, you did sound very drunk. Who Framed uh, uh, I would pee doubt over here. Um, the correct answer, as in the Oscar that uh, Roger Rabbit did not take home the statue for, is in fact uh, the third one. C. Best sound. Uh, Roger Shit. Rabbit uh, didn't win the didn't win the Oscar for it. In, uh, in addition to film editing and sound effects editing, uh, Roger Rabbit. I'm just going to say the uh, animated Rabbit took the awards from Roger Rabbit. Won for visual effects, and it also won a um, a separate special achievement Oscar for uh, I can't remember the exact f- framing of it, but you know innovativeness in the field, etc., and so on. Uh, meanwhile, the film was nominated but didn't win for best sound as well as best cinematography and best uh, set decoration. So, if you're an Oscars nut, um, that is some <laughs> extra context for you. Um, everybody's on the board after two questions. You love to see it, Aaron. In a commanding lead with two, Harry and Jason with one point apiece. Uh, we're at question number three out of five for this third rabbit. I've got Bugs Bunny from the 1996 film Space Jam. Now, uh, now back in 2011, the Harvard College Sports Analysis Collective compiled the box score statistics for the game that took place between the Toon Squad and the Monstars, which uh, 
and spoilers for Space Jam, the Toons won by a final score of 78 to 77. Going by the box score totals compiled by the HCSAC, uh, how many points did Bugs Bunny score in that game? So the game that the Toon Squad won, 78 to 77, how many points did Bugs Bunny score, Aaron? Uh, twenty. Ah, shit. Um, twenty-four. Twenty. Oh, shit. No, I've got you down for twenty-four. Uh, Harry, what's your guess? Put me on the board for twenty-five. Harry says twenty-five. How many does Jason say? I have never seen Space Jam in English, and I'm oh going to God. say, uh, uh, Don't twenty-six. Say. You said sorry. 26. Sorry, I, I said 26. Sorry. He he okay. overblew me. Yeah. Harry uh, tried to tried to box me out, but guess what, Harry? You have actually been boxed in. Hey. Oof. Yeah. Um sandwiched uh on on both sides. The correct answer, Bugs Bunny actually dropped 10 points against the Monstars in 1996's Space Jam. Uh, Michael, Michael Jordan was Mascot. on that team. He did a lot of the heavy listing, uh, lifting. Um, however, shout out to fellow rabbit Lola Bunny, um, who also uh, played for the Toon Squad and scored eight points in that game. Um, good supporting cast for MJ, uh, the Toon Squad. Uh, a lot of people don't talk about them. A lot of people Do you know how much MJ them. scored? In the uh, I don't have it up in front of me. I want to say it was something like 44 points. Sure. Something like that, which which yeah. seems a little low, but I, who can say? I mean, he's I playing against sure literal cartoons, it. right? You should be. Well, that, none of the shit. monsters had personally insulted him the day before, and so he wasn't right. bringing his legendary uh, spite game that he's known right. for. It's yeah, true. he uh, he didn't he didn't uh, he wasn't triggered in such a way where he was taking it personally. Um, that's a very very fair point. Um, and check out your local internet for that meme. <laughs> Michael Jordan about, uh, was it called? The Big Dance? We're getting off track here. I'm getting off track here. Number four, uh, we're now going to be shifting our focus to the film, uh, everybody's favorite rabbit film, Con Air, where Nicolas Cage's uh, recently released convict character wishes to reunite with his family, and he carries with him a gift uh, for his daughter in the form of a stuffed bunny. Um, I have a, so I found a listing online for how much one of these prop bunnies sold for uh, in American dollars. So I ask you all, how much money, again, in American dollars, uh, do y'all think one of these stuffed rabbits went for at auction? Aaron, what do you think? So this is this is not just like one of the, this is one of the ones used in the fit. Can you extrapolate one of the ones used in the film specifically? Yeah, like a prop rabbit. From what I could tell, there were a few different prop okay. rabbits floating around. So this is one of those rabbits. Fuck. Um, uh, $2,000. All right, $2,000. says, Aaron, uh, Harry, what's your guesstimate? Jesus, man, I don't know. I'm going to go with $500. All right, 500 says, Harry and Jason, what you think? I'm going to go for 50,000 big ones. <laughs> 50,000 big ones uh, for Jason Rockefeller Daphnis. According to Heroprop.com, uh, one of these prop bunnies sold for 
$3,900, so $3,900. Um, so Aaron gets the point there. He's closest. Uh, I will say there are a handful of other listings for Conair Prop Rabbits online, but they all required logins uh, for me to see how much they sold uh, sold for at auction, except for Hero Prop. So I guess the real shout out class, the- they restrict everybody else from checking. We're not uh, posh That's right. for them. You know what I mean? I guess. Um, so I, from my uh, poor ass stool that I'm sitting on, shout out to Hero Prop for having a reasonable interface uh, that caters to my uh, class and standing. That's the wildest shit I've ever heard, man. Think, think about that. Everybody who ever sees that stuffed animal is just going to assume it's a normal stuffed animal. And then the conversation you have with them is, you know, that's actually one of the bunnies from Con Air. And then they'll go, is it really? And you'll go, yeah. And they'll go, huh. And you'll go, yeah. And that'll be the end of the conversation. Like, what? What was the point of spending all that money? I'm to be didn't fair. Want to, yeah, sorry, Cody. Oh no, you go, you go. I'll, I'll I was going to say transition. that I didn't want to bring this up, but I bought the stuffed bunny, and I'll have you know I solved that problem because I have a little plaque that says "stuffed bunny from Conan." Oh, sure, right it's underneath it. Like, oh, so now you don't even need to have the conversation knows. about the conversation piece. It's just a piece. They just see my piece and they go, "That guy was a fucking stuffed rabbit from Conan." Okay, That's okay. It. I do see the benefit of that over having to explain it. Now it's like, oh, it speaks for itself. This is this is what this guy says about himself right. through the Con Air rabbit. Okay. The other, the other guy in the party is like, you know, I met John Malkovich once, and you're like, really? And he says, yeah, he was kind of a dick. And you said, huh. <laughs> and I guess on top of all the other benefits that we, we just outlined, um, Aaron or, or whoever else maybe owns one of those prop rabbits is, is able to, um, you know, they benefit from being mentioned on a, a local movie podcast with um, just over 100 Twitter followers. So that's, I don't know, that's maybe worth 3.9K dollars. Um, crickets.mp3 and finally for number five here the moment uh you've all been waiting for shout out to uh to frank the rabbit from the cult classic film donnie darko from the year 2001 this uh this question uh, uh, relatively straightforward rounded to the nearest million how much money did donnie darko take in worldwide during its original box office run and just to add some stakes here because this is um, like we're going through these in order of release. Um, I believe I have them set up that way. Um, so we're ending on this question just by means of Donnie Darko being the most recent cinematic rapper we're talking about to spice this up a little bit, looking at my, my notes here, um, Harry and Jason are still sitting at one point. Aaron has gotten a point for every question up to this point. So he could, he could round it out with a, a five for five if he, um, if he gets this correct. So just, I don't know, to, to, Add a, add a little bit of sweat during this question. So uh, all that being said, to reiterate, rounded to the nearest million, how much money did Donnie Darko, 2001's Donnie Darko, taken worldwide during its original box office run? Aaron, what you thinking? You say rounded to the nearest million? The nearest million. Donnie Darko made more. Uh, I guess it was maybe a fucking hit. I, I assume not much. Uh Oh, sorry. Can you say what year it came out again? Uh, yeah, two th- 2001. We're talking, yeah, 2001. Uh, 17 million. All right. 17 million, says Aaron. Harry, what's your guess? I was so excited for this question because when you said Donnie Darko, I was like, oh, I'm home. This is easy. I, I know everything. This is going to be fine. But then it was one of these questions where I don't actually <laughs> know anything. I'm going to go with one. Just just one. One million. Just one, says Harry and Jason. What do you think? I'm going to say $25 million. 
$25 million, says Jason. So Donnie Darko, 2001's Donnie Darko, brought in uh, just about $3 million during its initial worldwide theatrical run. Over the years, uh, various re-releases have bumped that total up to uh, about $7 million, um, but uh, $3 million during its uh, initial run. So um, it, it ends Aaron's perfect run. He still comes away with the victory today with four points. Harry <laughs> Harry with two, Jason with one. These these have been the noties, and I hope you all got your bunnies worth. I got to be honest. I'm very sorry, Aaron. I, I said one because I was trying to give you the W. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I mean, I didn't to be fair, with Donnie Darko, like, I don't know what, I, I was thinking like, oh, probably like, what, 880,000, like some small number like that. And then I was right. like, I guess it was, it was one of those, maybe it was like, it like, oh yeah, I don't know. If you, if you like had were, a cult hit though, right? It had like yeah. a long shelf life, if you, but I don't know if, if you it was asked huge. Me when I was Go like ahead. 14 years old, I would have told you that movie made like $150 million, man. That's one of the best, that, that like nobody has seen best that movie, movie. dude. It's yeah. the best movie. So Still I have never seen no, it. Really? No. It's about time. I mean, you missed. I mean, you missed the window by like a decade at least, uh, to and be honest. That's and a perfect and now, 17 and now you just gotta movie. Sh- you just got to shatter it. Yeah. Shatter the window. Uh, well, look, I, here's what I'll say. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have this victory. You know, I'm, I'm happy that, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, up against two formidable opponents. Uh, I will say that uh, my victory was cheapened a little bit by a fart sound effect and an, another fucking fart sound effect that our producer keeps putting in, but it's fine. I'm not salty about that. Uh, I don't hear any fart sound effects. Are you sure that this isn't a Harvey situation, but for fart sound effects? Okay, but Harvey was real, right? So, so there's you... It's just vulgar. Uh, when when I first watched Donnie Darko, I had just completed, I believe, either my junior or senior year of high school. I uh, was a seven, 17 year old boy, and I emailed my English teacher about it, whom I had a uh, close relationship with because I was uh, a nerd. Big surprise! Um, and I called it a Baldug's Roman, I believe. Uh, and I was I was really excited to talk about it with him. So that's my Donnie Darko backstory. Wow. Uh, I really hope that's one of the horror mystery movies playing at the Trilon uh, later this month. I believe tickets are all sold out, but uh, just listening to this very podcast has got to get your uh, really got to really get your juices flowing for the Trilon uh, and listening to excellent uh, fun games at the end of every episode like that, that Cody can, keeps concocting uh, week after week after week. And we love him for it and so much more. Uh, but listening to this podcast is a great way to, uh, you know, get the juices flowing for going to the Trilon. But uh, even better way is to find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema and to go to Trilon.org buy tickets to a lot of different showings. Uh, this month has been a lot of horror and a lot of uh, interesting mix-ins. Uh, there are movies planned through the rest of the year, and you should check the calendar to see what you want to see. Uh, this podcast is called Try Love. You can find it on Try Love. God, ah, I was doing almost so well there. Uh, you can find it on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm one of the people who makes it, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, I've been... What Narvis Narvison has been my name, Cody A. Um, yeah, watch Harvey uh, if you've never seen it, or if you have seen it, um, maybe revisit it because uh, it 
is an excellent film. Um, and uh, just plugging, if you're in the Twin Cities slash, I, I guess, Minnesota area in general, um, COVID cases and positivity rate, all that, all the dastardly metrics, um, it's becoming an increasing presence again. Um, all that stuff is uh, gradually getting worse. So please uh, continue to mask up. We are by no means out of this uh, horrific hellscape yet, and we never will be uh, unless you do your part. So I don't know, friendly reminder to please do that. Um, thank you. Uh, I can't remember if I gave my app, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Wow. We're, this is like a platform now. We're doing it. Uh, that was one of my favorite send-offs ever, Jason. I'm also one of the people who makes this podcast. My name is uh, Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. We had to miss the Lucy Dacus concert. I don't know if Jason will ever fully recover from that. So Man. yes, COVID is still very real. So we should all uh, keep that in mind. Um, vote yes on question number two for implementing uh, public safety alternatives to the police in Minneapolis. Uh, the police should be defunded and abolished in Minneapolis and everywhere else. And if our morally bankrupt mayor doesn't uh, completely veto that question, as he has done the previous three times because he's trying to actually give the police more money, uh, you will have the opportunity to vote against him, and you should do that. Uh, you, again, you can find me on Twitter at Shitakiari. Watch Harvey, go to the Trilon, wear a mask, uh, defund the police. Uh, I agree with everything Harry said. Uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. All right. Um, P O O K A Puka from old Celtic mythology, a fairy spirit in animal form, always very large. The puka appears here and there, now and then, to this one and that one. A benign but mischievous creature, very fond of rum pots, crack pots, and how are you, Mr. Wilson? How are you, Mr. Wilson? Who in the encyclopedia wants to know? <laughs> <laughs>